Well, this morning we are beginning a short series of studies for the season of Lent. And it's one we're going to be pondering certain Christian practices or habits. Habits such as hearing God's word, praying confidently before God's throne, fighting temptation in God's strength, and most of all, fixing our eyes on God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the particular habit I want us to begin with this morning is that of corporate worship. And to get us started, I want us to read from 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verses 1 to 23. 2 Chronicles, it's of course in the Old Testament. It comes after, you can guess, 1 Chronicles and before Ezra. So if you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, you've gone too far, go back just a bit. 2 Chronicles is there. Chapter 20. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. It is a long reading, so I encourage you to buckle up, listen up, and let's hear what God has to say to us. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom. Let's just skip down to verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and built for you in it a for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, Or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. Your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. And down to verse 12. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid. And do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the south of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. 
Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them. The Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me. Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise The Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. When they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to begin by reminding us that at Trinity, we believe our worship together is at the heart of who we are and all we do as a church. Put another way, we are never more the church, we are never more the church than when we're worshiping together on the Lord's Day. And what this means is that our corporate worship is the source of our fellowship and the motivational energy for our ministry. Put another way, our worship together is what shapes, sustains, and spurs our growth in the gospel, as well as our going out with the gospel. Which means, if we neglect corporate worship, our Christian life and Christian mission will be stymied and stagnant. We can't live the Christian life either individually or corporately, if we neglect this gathering, corporate worship. And to highlight this, I want us to consider this long passage that focuses on King Jehoshaphat and the corporate worship he called and entered into as he faced a crisis. You see, at the beginning of his reign, King Jehoshaphat, he had it all. He was loved, respected, accomplished, and abundantly blessed, both spiritually and materially. We read this about him back in chapter 17, that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat, and the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. However, by the time we go from chapter 17 to chapter 20, all this has drastically changed. For we now see Jehoshaphat and his kingdom, his people, confronted by a triple threat. Verse 1, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some of the Muonites, which are the people from Mount Seir, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Previously, no one had come against him. But now these three nations came together for the purpose not only of destroying Jehoshaphat, 
but all of God's covenant people. How'd Jehoshaphat react? Verse 3 tells us he was afraid. He was afraid because he who had always triumphed was now threatened. He who had always been established was now exposed. He who had always been victorious was now vulnerable. Jehoshaphat was afraid because crises are always scary. They reveal the truth of our fragility. They shatter the illusion of our self-security and supposed self-sufficiently. Crises make clear that none of us, not even the great Jehoshaphat, are immune to loss and devastation. In the face of crisis, Jehoshaphat was afraid. But notice he didn't stop with his fear, did he? He didn't end with his fear. He didn't give in to his fear. It was there. It was present. But he didn't give into it fully. If he had, he would have been undone. If he'd have stopped with his fear, he would have been shattered. But he didn't stop with his fear. Rather, he did something else. Look at verse 3 again. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. So he set his face purposefully to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat intentionally sought the Lord in worship. But notice he didn't do this only individually. He did it corporately. Verse 4, and Judah, which was his realm, assembled to seek help from the Lord. And they did so in worship. So in the face of this crisis, King Jehoshaphat, he called the church, the assembly, to seek the Lord in corporate worship. And what this teaches us is that when we're confronted with a crisis, when we're faced with a threat, the most important thing we can do the most important place we can be is corporate worship. Now, sometimes we don't think that way, do we? Things are too difficult right now. I just can't make it to church. No, the most important place that we can be is the assembly, the gathering of God's people. Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm currently not in a crisis. Personally, I'm not in a crisis, so do I have to be at worship? Well, you are facing a crisis, always. You are facing a triple threat that is scarier than the triple threat Jehoshaphat was facing. What is that triple threat? Well, it's the threat of sin, Satan, and death. This is the triple threat that we face at all times, all places, no matter our circumstances. There's the sin and selfishness that so easily entangles us. The sin that fills our world, bending it towards self-pleasure, self-expression, and self-fulfillment, and all apart from God. We live in a world that's against God and His people. Then there's Satan, who hates us and accuses us and wants nothing more than to destroy the church. Then there's death. Not only physical death, which itself is scary, but even more spiritual death. Separation from God, who alone is life, against us is an abiding triple threat that seeks to dismay and destroy us. And it's in the face of this ongoing threat that we're to come together to seek the Lord. So that together we might be reminded of and reoriented to our God. 
to who our God is and to what our God has done on our behalf so that together we might be reminded that our God is for us and so that in worship we might more and more be formed into his kingdom people, to a people that is loved by God. We need corporate worship. We need this gathering, which means worship isn't an add-on. It's not an extra. No, it's essential because of the things that actually happen and take place in worship, the sort of things that are highlighted in this passage. What are those things? Well, the first thing is prayer. When we gather to worship, we gather to pray, to address God out of our need, to address God who's first addressed us in His grace and mercy. And when we come together to pray and worship, we aren't coming together to address a distant God. We aren't gathering to petition an absentee landlord. No, we're praying to our covenant God. Look how Jehoshaphat refers to God in verses 5 to 12. In verse 6, he speaks of God as the God of our fathers, the God who's been at work throughout history before we ever even showed up on the scene. And then in verse 12, he says even more personally that God is our God, the one who spoke all things into being, who sustains all things by the word of his power is our God, by his grace and mercy. And in Christ, he's our father, our father who's in control and who cares and who calls us to pray in worship. Now think about it. Everything in Jehoshaphat's circumstances cried out that God wasn't in control, that God didn't care. And personally, he felt this. He was afraid. But in the assembly, in in the context of corporate worship, his outlook began to be broadened as he was reoriented in prayer, reoriented in prayer to God's power, to God's provision, and to God's promise. Look again at the prayer. First thing, Jehoshaphat focused on what? God's power. Verse 6, you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. In worship, Jehoshaphat and the people were reminded of and acknowledged that God reigns and his kingdom will never end. It's one of the reasons that we begin our worship so often with these words as a reminder to us that when we gather in the assembly, blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This one kingdom that alone will last because all other kingdoms are in the process now of decay. Second, in verse 7, Jehoshaphat focused on God's provision of a land, of God's good inheritance to his people which we know ultimately is fulfilled in Christ in the giving of his kingdom. And then thirdly, he focused on God's promise. In verse 9, he recalls how God promised that if his people gathered at the temple in worship and cried out to him in their affliction, then God would hear them and save them. And in light of God's power, provision, and promise, Jehoshaphat could then pray honestly about his own weakness and ability. Did you catch that? 
As he focused on God's power, God's provision, God's promise, he could then now say, in light of who God is, what God has done, I am weak. I am unable. I am powerless. He could express his absolute dependence on his God. Verse 12, we are powerless against this great horde that's coming against us. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, here's my hope for us as a congregation, that every time we gather in worship, this prayer or a version of this prayer would be on our lips. We don't know what to do. We are powerless in and of ourselves. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I I don't know what to do about my marriage, but my eyes are on you. I don't know how to parent my children, but my eyes are on you. I don't know how to overcome this particular sin, but my eyes are on you. I don't know how to bless my neighbors and co-workers with the good news of Christ, but my eyes are on you. I don't know how to make it in this world, in a culture that's abandoned your truth, but my eyes are on you. Friends, I truly believe that if we begin to pray in this way, individually and corporately, God will answer our prayers and supply for our every need in Christ Jesus. Therefore, when you come to worship, when we gather together on the Lord's Day, come expectantly and come prayerfully, acknowledging God's power to deliver remembering God's provision of his kingdom and trusting in his promise to save and deliver all who seek and savor him. We don't know what to do. We don't like admitting that, do we? We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So in worship, we gather to address God in prayer. This is our corporate prayer service. I'm really excited about what we're doing on Thursdays. But this is the main prayer service of the people of God. So we pray, but at the same time, God addresses us. We address God in prayer. God addresses us from his word. Isn't that what we see in verses 13 to 17? From response to Jehoshaphat's prayer, God sent his spirit upon a Levite, on a priest named Jehaziel, who in turn began to preach God's word. So in worship, we have both praying and preaching. Verse 15, Listen, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, don't be afraid and don't be dismayed at this great horde for the battle's not yours, but the Lord's. Verse 17, you won't need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Don't be afraid and don't be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Now what's the essence of this sermon? Bare morality? Military strategy? It was about being politically savvy in the hopes of winning over the opposition? Was it mere entertainment? No, the essence of this sermon was the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners and rescues the powerless. Jehaziel's sermon was the gospel that says, the battle's not yours. No, the battle is ultimately God's. It's a sermon that says you don't need to fight in this battle in your own strength. 
because you're powerless. No, God will fight for you. All you need to do is stand and see. All you need to do is trust in God's power to save. God is for you and God is with you. And because he is, you needn't fear or be dismayed. And my friends, this is the very word God gives to us when we gather for worship. When he says to us the battle against sin, against Satan, and against death isn't ultimately yours, but mine. Therefore, you don't need to fight in your own strength. No, you need to acknowledge that you're powerless. And in doing so, we hear God say to, to, to us, I, I've already fought the greatest battle for you in my son's death when he paid the penalty for your sins, when he defeated Satan, casting him down as he was lifted up on the cross. It's Christ who crushed death in his resurrection. And he's given you his spirit to lead you, to guide you, and to comfort you. Therefore, all we need to do is stand firm in what Jesus has done for us. How? Well, by fixing our eyes upon him in faith. Fixing our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith. And because God's fought the biggest battle on our behalf, we needn't fear or be dismayed. At the same time, we can trust that God will continue to be at work in all of our particular crisis. So that in the midst of our struggles, we can still go out. Go out into the world, as it says in verse 17, trusting that God will be with us. That he'll never leave us or forsake us. My friends, this is the continual message we need to hear when we gather for worship. We need to be renewed in it again and again because we so quickly forget it. It only takes about a week to forget it. And hence, we need to come back again to be reminded of this gospel message, to hear it afresh, that this is what God has done for you, for us, how he's with us. We need to hear the call to trust his promises, the very call that we hear in verse 20. When the king says, hear me, we have listened, we have now hear, hear me, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets, believe his word, and you will succeed. The worship of God always revolves around listening to and hearing God's word. His word that directs us to his sufficiency, away from our supposed self-sufficiency to his sufficiency that's met our greatest need in Christ. Christ to himself is the personal and powerful provision of God as well as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So in worship, we gather to address ourselves to God. At the same time, we also listen to God's word of hope to us. And then thirdly, in worship, we offer ourselves to God in submission as well as in song. First, in submission... We see this in verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. In response to God's word of grace, Jehoshaphat and all Judah bowed down to the ground. They got flat on their face. They fell prostrate 
before God as an act of complete submission, submission of body and soul. They bowed their heads, hearts, and hands to God. And what this teaches us is that to worship God truly involves submitting to him fully. To worship is to recognize that there's not one square inch of our lives or of this world where Christ doesn't place his hand and say, that's mine and I'm in charge. As his followers, we've been bought with a price, the very price of his precious life. And it's a response to the price that he paid on our behalf that we worship him by offering up our all to him, saying to him, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art, thou and thou only, first in my heart. But not only do we offer ourselves to God in submission, we also offer ourselves to God in song. Verse 19, and the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a loud voice. Now, who are these people who stood up to sing? Well, they were the designated choir of Israel in the Old Testament. They were the choir of the people of God. But who's that choir today? It's us. It's the church. We're the ones who've been called and commissioned to celebrate our God in song and to do so with a loud voice, to do so with gusto in response to God's grace. In response to all that God has done for us in Jesus, we're to sing joyfully and loudly, which means worship is a celebration. It's a victory celebration that makes much of God's grace. And where God's grace is made much of, there you will find grateful singing. For the response to God's grace always includes exalted speech. And that's what singing is. Singing is exalted speech, and it's the exalted speech of gratitude. That's why when this choir goes out, as we're told in verse 21, what are they singing? They're singing Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love endures forever. We're to sing in worship because we're grateful for what God has done for us. We're to sing because we've been gifted, not necessarily with the voice of song. I trust when new creation comes, we're all going to be able to sing really well. But not all of us have it now. So that's not the gifting we're talking about here. No, we've been gifted with God's redemption of us in Christ and one of the ways we'll know if we've received this gift and are resting in this gift is when we burst out in song, even if we can't carry a tune. We will sing because a heart touched by grace always leads to a mouth filled with praise. So don't mumble your way through worship. No, sing. Even shout. We Presbyterians can do that. Shout loudly and gratefully to your God because of who he is and what he's done. Well, there's one more thing I want us to see. This is actually, for me, the most amazing thing about this passage. It's found in what we're told in verse 22. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush for the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. 
through song, through praise, through worship, God routed the enemies of his people. And what this tells us is that worship, yes, it's a celebration, but at the same time, worship is warfare. For it's through our worship together that God is actually advancing his kingdom against the forces of darkness. He's doing it right now in this gathering. Ways that we can't even quite understand. That when God's people gather, God is advancing his kingdom against the forces of darkness. The darkness that's out there, but also is still in here. One writer put it this way, the church won't conquer in any area with the gospel using normal worldly means. We can't rely on political activity, improved education, popular worldly slogans, or even the latest technology. None of these are powerful enough to win the battle. For the only way the kingdom of God will go forward in the world, it isn't through protest, but through prayer and praise. We must worship our way to victory. When we gather on the Lord's day, we gather to engage in God's battle against sin, against Satan, and against death. In his battle of advancing his kingdom in the world until the day Christ returns. And how do we engage in it? Well, by participating in the liturgy. Trusting that the Spirit uses the liturgy of worship. He uses the liturgy of worship to shape us more and more into God's kingdom people. A people sent into the world to honor God's name, to welcome all with the gospel, and to embody Christ's reign in the way we live. Because we know we currently live in a world, in a culture that's divided, that's crumbling, that lives only for self, and that's actually against the church. And our job isn't to fix the culture of the world. It's not to prop up the culture with morality and niceties. No, our calling is to bear witness to God's kingdom with our lives. And that's why we need worship. For when we worship, when we gather as the church, God is at work. He's at work before we ever showed up. And what we're doing when we come to worship is we're entering into his work so that he might work on us individually and corporately. So we gather as the church in order to grow as the church so that we might then go as the church into the world to lift high, not ourselves, but Christ and his cross. So then, brothers and sisters, don't neglect worshiping together. Because to neglect worship is actually to neglect Christ. Christ, the Savior who died to make us fit for worship. Christ, the King who calls us to submit ourselves to Him in worship. And Christ, the Conqueror, who's at work in and through our worship. We worship not simply because of the crisis, but ultimately because of Christ. Christ, our King, our Lord, and our Savior. And in response to him, we lift up our voices. We join it with the psalmist, even as we did this morning in our call to worship, proclaiming, oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our souls thirst for you as a dry and weary land where there is no water. So we've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory 
Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Are we able to say that this morning? Because your steadfast love that's been shown to us most clearly in Christ, because it's better than life itself, my lips will praise you, certainly individually, but also corporately, together, on the Lord's day. With that, let us now come and ask our God to root these things in our heart, hearts more and more. Our God, we thank you for such a passage that points us to the necessity and the joy and the wonder of worshiping you together. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for this family, this assembly. We pray that in this place, in response to your grace, and because your steadfast love is better than life, that our lips, our hearts, our minds, our all would praise you. We'll praise you in praying and listening and in singing. For Jesus' sake, amen.